if you'd like to pick up your Bibles as well, we're going to turn now to read God's Word in the book of James. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And that's uh, in the Church Bibles, page 1216. 1216. James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Well, thank you for your invitation. It's good to be here with you. Often when a pastor is a visitor to a church, he picks a joyful, encouraging passage so that when he leaves, everybody thinks, oh, what a nice man. You know me already, so uh, I can't get away with that. So I, haven't, so I haven't picked an encouraging passage. It's a challenging passage. I hope we'll see that it's a challenging passage. Imagine you were a job applicant for a high-powered, well-paid job. You'd set your sights on it. You really wanted the income that that particular job provided. This is a true story. 200 people applied for such a job. To whittle them down, the candidates were given a test of planning, strategy, to see if they were the right people to earn such a high amount of money. The test was this. You're driving along the road. It's the middle of winter, it's freezing cold, the wind is blowing, the rain is coming down like stair rods. You're in your fabulously expensive two-seater sports car. You're out in the middle of nowhere and you come to a bus stop. And at the bus stop you see three people. You see a little old lady who looks to you as though if she stands out in the cold and the wet for five more minutes, she's going to collapse and possibly die. Standing there as well is a really good friend of yours who once saved your life. And the third person standing there, the application form said, if you're a man, is the woman of your dreams. If you're a woman, the man of your dreams. You can tell how long ago it was. They wouldn't put that now. <laughs> who would you choose to take to save from the cold and the wet? Candidates all thought of different ideas and different. some said the old lady because that will show that I'm compassionate and the boss will perhaps think I'm the right one. Or perhaps somebody else put my friend who saved my life because loyalty, he'll think loyalty to the firm's good. Only one came up with the solution and it got him the job. He said, what I would do, I would give the car keys to the friend who saved my life get him to take the elderly lady 
and I would stay with the woman of my dreams and wait for the bus. <laughs> he got the job. This passage, not the easiest passage to hear, not the easiest passage to interpret, and it's actually fairly controversial. Commentaries differ on who these few verses are addressed to. Obviously, it speaks to rich people, speaking about materialism. This is where usually a congregation starts to switch off and think, phew, it's not about me. I'm not rich, and I'm not materialistic. If you suddenly were transported back into James's day, probably all of us here would be considered fabulously wealthy. We've got more money than we actually need for food. We've got more than one set of clothes. We've got homes with more than one room. And if you've got a cow, it doesn't have to share part of the accommodation with you. We are fabulously wealthy compared to people then. Well, the controversy is as to whether the people being addressed in these few verses, these six verses, are Christians or not. Some people see the strong language, the warnings given, as surely not applying to Christians. Verse 6, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Surely, if that is saying that in the last day at judgment, you will to some degree lose out, that can't be addressed to Christians. You wouldn't talk to Christians like that. Surely Romans 8 verse 1 applies to Christians. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And Philippians 1.6, I am sure that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. The Apostle Paul is there saying that he knows that the Lord will complete the work he started in a Christian. You will never lose your salvation. And so surely James can't be talking to Christians, talking like this. Once adopted into the family of God, you are always in the family of God. So how could James be warning Christians to weep and wail over the coming misery? If that is what he was saying. So some conclude, no, James wasn't talking to Christians. He's talking to non-Christians. Wouldn't that be nice? We could then sit back and think, ah, this doesn't apply to me. I don't have to take this seriously. But remember, the letter of James was written to Christians. That's made clear right from the very start and throughout the book. I think 15 times we've got the term brothers throughout that whole of the book. And this section starts exactly the same way as the previous section, which was clearly addressed to Christians. Come now. There's nothing to say that this is any different. And what follows in verse 7, Therefore, brothers and, and, and sisters, building on what has just been said, with nothing to indicate that James is addressing a different group. And also the previous section addressed people who were making plans, Christians who were making plans for their lives, plans to make money, to prosper, to thrive, to go about their day-to-day -day life, and yet leaving Christ out of their day-to-day -day life. Christians were doing that. And besides, why would James write to people who weren't there? non-Christians who weren't there in the church. 
a letter to be read to God's people in the church to Christians, why would it speak to unbelievers, especially without saying so, without James saying, you who don't know the Lord, who don't believe yet, listen up. He doesn't say that. The book of James isn't telling people how to be saved. We often would like a list of do's and don'ts, wouldn't we? Something rigid that if you do that, you do that, you do that, then you're saved. Make sure you don't do that, that or that. That isn't the book of James. It isn't just a list of rules to obey to be saved, a list of do's and don'ts. It's to actually get those who think they're Christians, who call themselves Christians, to make sure that they really are. To not just profess saving faith, but to actually possess saving faith. And to live in such a way that proves it. Our life must verify our words. Words are easy. So we've got no warrant to make ourselves feel more comfortable by saying now all of a sudden, without warning, without announcement or explanation, James isn't talking to us, he's talking to non-Christians. James is speaking to Christians and he gives us a stern warning. He takes away our ease, he takes away our comfort and he says, look at the danger of being fruitless. James takes away the comfortable ease of those who aren't growing in likeness to Christ. None of you have changed in appearance since I was here in 2007. You all look just as young as you did then. But have we grown in Christ over the last year? And so in that case, if these people that James is writing to haven't grown, haven't changed, haven't become more Christ-like, in that case, they've got no right to comfort themselves that they are sure they're Christians. A wonderful thing happened on the cross. You see various aspects of God's nature that seem to be irreconcilable coming together. You see the holiness of God, the purity coming together with the love and the mercy of God. His holiness and hatred of sin and his love and mercy for sinners came together, united together. We see there at the cross that we're more sinful than we can ever have dreamt possible. You see, what was actually necessary that we could be plucked from the destiny of hell that was ours. But you also see that in Christ we're more loved than we could ever imagine, more accepted than we can ever imagine. Both at the same time. Well, we said if you are truly saved, you can't lose your salvation. But how do you know if you're saved? How do you know you're a Christian? If we go through a period, an extended period of time, when there's no Christian growth, no like, growing likeness to Christ, then we start to lose our assurance by God's grace. Where do I really stand? Am I truly saved? Or did I just say words without really meaning or understanding them when I prayed years ago? And that's good for us. Because if after such a period of time without growth, we don't feel like that, and we don't question where we are with the Lord, we don't wonder about our salvation, then we're actually in danger. As a pastor, I've noticed 
a real change. And I'm troubled, increasingly troubled, by people who believe they're Christians so easily. Didn't seem to happen many years ago. People often now believe they're Christians without any real evidence of the fact. Sure, some people, a very few people, lose their assurance if they are aware of one sin. They have done something, some fairly minor thing, and sometimes people lose their assurance straight away. Well, that shows that they don't really understand the gospel at all. They've no understanding that the gospel means that we're saved by grace, not by our works. Deep down, such people think that they are saved by being good. They're a rare breed. Others, many more of them, never lose their comfort. Never mind how they live, no matter what they do. They don't lose that assurance. I've got three people in my mind. One of them never goes to church. Hasn't been for a couple of years. Another one has fallen into a very sinful relationship and never goes to church. The third one once went to an evangelistic meeting and an evangelist prayed for him. So I must be a Christian. Each of those three says that they're saved, says that they're Christians. I'm not here to say whether they are or not, but where is the evidence? By their fruit, you will know them. As some forget they're saved by grace, not works, those forget that God is a holy God. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. They forget why Jesus died. He didn't just die to forgive us from sin. If I'd handed out a questionnaire at the beginning and said, why did Jesus die? And you wrote, to forgive us from sin. Well, that is true. But we need to say more than that. Not just just forgive us from sin. He died to save us from sin. Not just the consequences of sin, but to sanctify us, to make us like Jesus. And if we're not growing in likeness to Jesus, where is the proof that we are saved? The Lord died to make us holy and righteous. If you lead a consistently fruitless life, as the months go by, constantly failing to show a likeness to Jesus, then James aims to shake us up, to take away our comfort, to get us to examine ourselves. It doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian. You see how far Christians can wander, how deep they can sink. Think about David and Bathsheba. Think about Peter denying his Lord. But they were instances, not a settled, long-term state to be in. James is saying, examine yourself. If you aren't becoming more like Christ, if you aren't living a holy life, then your comfort, your assurance ought to be gone. How do you know you will stand on the day of judgment? Because that day is coming when you and I will stand before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords as judge. So none of us dare comfort ourselves lightly oh yeah an evangelist prayed for me I prayed a prayer many years ago is that the ground of your assurance when James says in verse 1 weep and wail in essence it's a call to repent otherwise you've got no right to comfort 
If you lose your comfort too easily, beware legalism. Beware undervaluing grace, not seeing that God is a God of grace, undeserved favor. If you don't lose comfort, no matter how you live, where you go or what you do, beware lest you're deluding yourself because the Lord is a holy God. And that's why James speaks so severely to Christians. If there is no growth, spiritual growth in your life year after year, look out. Don't easily assure yourself that you're a Christian. Make sure. Secondly then, James warns us against the danger of materialism, the love of money and greed. He shows us what that leads to, but he shows us some signs of materialism, some examples. Verse 3, you have stored up treasure. You've hoarded it. That's what we're getting at here. Not just saved it. The Bible is in favor of being prudent, being careful of saving. In Proverbs 6, the slacker is told to observe the ways of the ant who stores up the food in the summer so there's something to eat in the winter. But the Bible is against hoarding. Here we're warned against storing up, hoarding our treasure on earth. Where is your treasure and mine? Is it on earth? Or are we storing our treasure in heaven? And then in verse 5, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. See, there's a gulf between saving and being prudent and between self-indulgence. Hoarding instead of putting it to good use. There's a difference between living a reasonable, comfortable life and living luxuriously. Where's the line? That's what you want to know, isn't it? You want me to tell you where the sin comes in, how far you can go before it becomes sin. It's not how the Bible works. Because each of us have a tendency to draw that line in a different place to suit ourselves. People do like clear guidelines. How many cars is a Christian allowed to have? How big can they be? How new can they be? How big can your house be? How many holidays can you have? Can they be foreign holidays? What about my clothing budget? Can I wear a 3,500 pound suit and 490 pound Prada shoes and still hope to be prime minister? That's not a political comment. The thing is the Bible was written for every culture, every geographical location, every era and age. And just because the Bible doesn't give a precise answer on any of those things doesn't mean we can ignore the subject. We dare not ignore the subject if we take the warnings of James seriously. Instead, we must be serious about our Christian lives, serious about our use of money. We must be prayerful about each of these issues to make sure that we're not just going with the ways of the world, but we are living as our Lord would want. Would our Lord really want me to spend my money like this? Is this justifiable? Is it necessary? Or is it excessive? Instead of saying, am I allowed to spend my money on this? We should ask, do I have to spend my money on this? Or could I instead give this money to support the Lord's work? Yes, there is a balance. But it must be a prayerfully considered balance. Not something we've just drifted into. Because that's what everybody else does. 
John Wesley, who went on to be known as the founder of Methodism, he said, Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. Has money, wealth, ease and comfort found its way into my heart or your heart? He also said, Do you not know that God entrusted you with that money, all above what buys necessities for your families, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, and indeed, as far as it will go, to relieve the wants of all mankind. How can you, how dare you, defraud the Lord by applying it to any other purpose? Not how much of my money will I give to God, but how much of God's money will I keep for myself? He lived on 30 pounds a year, which to us, means nothing. We don't know how much that was in those days, or I don't anyway. But as his income grew from the publication of books and sermons and offerings and so on, he was careful to always live on 30 pounds. A danger for Christians is that we live up to our income in as much luxury as we can afford. And if we get a big pay rise, we live up to that, and so on it goes. Our standard of living must not go up as fast as our income. The more money we make, the greater distance there must be between how we live and how we could live with that income. No Christian should live as well as their income allows. Imagine how many preachers, pastors, evangelists, missionaries, children's workers could be sent out if we lived carefully, prayerfully like that. God commands us, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the harvest field. Do we take that seriously to start with? And if we do, are we prepared to be part of the answer in supporting those missionaries, evangelists, pastors, and children's workers? A tithe, 10%, is just the start. And the richer we are, the more we're able to give on top of that. I wrote down a quote earlier on from Billy Graham. One of our greatest sins is the fact that we are robbing God of what rightly belongs to him. When we don't tithe, we shirk a just debt. Actually, you are not giving when we give God one-tenth because it already belongs to him. This is a debt we owe. Not until we have given a tenth do we actually begin to make an offering. This passage is incredibly severe. The love of money, as Wesley said, will get into my heart if I don't give it away. The love of money will calcify your love for the Lord. It will shrink your soul. This passage talks about our money corroding. Unless we're using that money, as we ought for building the church, winning souls, making a difference in people's lives. And if we don't, then that money is a witness against us and our soul is diminished. Luke 16, 11. I've got a feeling I've read that verse out here before. I don't know. Don't expect you to remember. But So if you have not been trustworthy 
in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? That's very searching, isn't it? True riches include Christian growth, fruitfulness, answers to prayer, usefulness in service, effective witness, love of money, holding on to it, uh, holding on to it blinds us into thinking that luxuries are necessities. Beware. Watch out. Look at the need around us. We must live below the standard that we could live if we're to live and be like our Lord. And we need to be honorable in all our dealings with cash, with money and wealth, making sure that we pay in full and we pay promptly when we have a debt. Thirdly, how can we be healed of this sickness? If you have a love of money, you see, it will shrivel your soul, whether you get it, the money, or whether you don't. If you don't have what you want, you'll be tempted to be bitter and envious and always hankering after it. And if you do have it, we're tempted then to rely upon it and to ignore God, to cling to it as though that's our savior. That's what gets us through instead of seeing that everything we have is of the Lord. If we do have a problem with love of luxury, love of wealth, if we've just drifted into that and we don't prayerfully consider regularly where we are financially, James says it's because we've forgotten that Jesus is coming back. Look at verse 3. You have stored up treasure in the last days. People who have too deep a love of money fail to focus upon eternity, that Jesus is coming back. And a proper attitude to eternity gives us a proper attitude to the world now. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. If your system of eschatology leads you to think, well, Jesus can't come yet because this, this, and this hasn't happened, it's probably a wrong system of eschatology, doctrine of the last things. Because we don't know. Jesus said, I come like a thief in the night. And a thief doesn't announce when that's going to be. If you were 90, is anybody here 90 years old? Phew, I'm glad for one reason. If you were 90 years old, you could make a mistake and you could, you could give up. And you could say, I'm not going to plan anything because I could die any day now. Which you could at 90 or at 9. I won't plan a meal with my family. I won't meet a friend. Because I'm 90 years old after all. I might die. Well, that's going too far. It's a wrong attitude. On the other hand, a 90-year-old probably should make sure their will is up to date. And to undertake a 20-year project might not be the wisest thing to do. But they should always take into, the fact, into account that their last day is coming. But so should we. The fact that Jesus is coming back puts our money, our savings, our houses, cars and holidays and whatever you fill in the gaps, puts it all into context. It should make us bold, radical, generous givers. On the other hand, we have to realize that we do live here and now. And so we should care about things here. Yes, winning souls. 
but also opening doors by helping people with practical needs. If we store up wealth and live in luxury, this passage says, you've forgotten that it's the last days. Christ could come at any time. And what would he say about your villa in the south of France, your Porsche, your Bentley, and your Bugatti on the drive? I hope nobody's got a Porsche, Bentley, and a Bugatti on the drive. If you have, I didn't know that. But it, probably you haven't. What would he say? Don't store up treasure on earth, but in heaven. Look at verse 6. It's very significant. If you've got an older NIV, it totally misses the point. I see on the screen earlier, it did cor correct it in later editions. The CSB is quite literal. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. He does not resist the righteous one. It doesn't say, you rich people who aren't Christians, who've killed the poor, because remember, these are Christians. It speaks of the righteous one. The righteous one who does not, not could not notice, who does not oppose you. The real reason why we're obsessed with money and things and making our house into a palace is the real reason we don't reach out to others and use our wealth as we should is because we've forgotten Jesus, the righteous one, the holy one. That's what the previous verses were talking about. So it's sin to know the good and yet not do it. To live without reference to God and say, yeah, I'm going to go there, earn this money, do this and that. I didn't seek God's wisdom, didn't seek God's leading, and I've got my eyes set on money, wealth, and comfort. <coughs> and if we think like that, we've forgotten Jesus. We've forgotten how he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He didn't resist. He didn't open his mouth. He died for you. You've forgotten that. You've forgotten what he did for you. In the last week of his life, a woman came to him, Mary, with a vessel, a fabulously expensive perfumed ointment. She broke that vessel to anoint Jesus and pour it out upon him. It was worth a fortune. It was a huge sum. She poured out everything for Jesus. That was quite possibly her pension pot. With the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Then Judas, who was there, he went out after he'd seen that to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. She gave everything to Jesus, all her wealth. Judas couldn't stand to see that. Are we going to live like Mary? Or are we going to live like Judas? Compared to what Jesus has done, our money, our luxury, is worth very little. We should lay it at his feet. He may give us wealth back. There are many godly, wealthy people in the pages of Scripture. But are we prayerfully wealthy or selfishly wealthy? We should lay it at his feet. The previous verse is there, verse in the, uh, the previous chapter, speak about the sin of forgetting our God, just going on with our lives without reference to him. 
And that includes using our worldly goods as we choose. Remember the one who died for you. Remember the one who is coming back. And if we do that, that will change us. That will give us a vastly different attitude to everything in the world.